Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boss Barista. I'm Jasper Wild, And I'm Ashley Rodriguez. And today we have Lisa Nisley with us. Uh, Lisa is a freelance writer and editor um, from Portland, Oregon. So she teaches a class about food, social identity, and justice for the Portland University or the Portland Underground Graduate School. That sounds cool. I know. I want to go to that school. <laughs> I would only want to go to a graduate school if it was underground. I, I would agree that's, 100%. Yeah. Um, so that sounds really awesome. And we, um, we wanted to talk to Lisa because she wrote this amazing article for Bitch Media three years ago. No, four years. Four years ago. ago at this four point. years ago. Well, the reason that we we it resurfaced again is because on International Women's Day, Sprudge wrote an article about women's issues in coffee, and they referenced Lisa's article, which I had read before, and it had resonated with me, kind of like in the periphery, like, oh, this is really cool, but like mm-hmm. I can't do anything about this. Um, but then I read it again, and I was like, oh wait, I can do something about this. Like this is so relevant. <laughs> So, um, so we reached out to Lisa, who's generous enough to be here and spend some time with us. So hi, Lisa. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. So I kind of want to go back to that article because it's crazy to me that something so relevant to coffee now was written so long ago by someone who wasn't even like in our, in our industry. So can you tell us a little bit about like what you were doing at that time and what you were seeing in coffee and what inspired you to write that article? Sure. So I was getting my PhD at Emory in Atlanta at the time in women's studies. And I was spending a lot of time at the the cafe that was right across the street from campus. Um, And I befriended the baristas, you know, and I was there studying all the time. And it just so happened that that year, the Uh, WBC was in Atlanta. And so these friends of mine invited me to go. And I just went thinking, oh, this will be interesting. I had never been to like a barista competition before. I wasn't really involved in the industry. You know, I was just friends with a couple baristas. And we went and I was watching these performances of sort of coffee expertise. And I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, there's so much, uh, gender and race being performed right now. And um, this is such a crazy little microcosm of a world. And so I started getting interested in how gender in particular played a role for the, the uh, profession of being a barista. And so I, I continue to sort of think about that and for a while. And then when a uh, bitch had their food issue I pitched the story and then I just went ahead and wrote it and um it seemed to resonate what kind of response did you get from people I got uh mostly pretty positive responses people reaching out and saying I'm so glad you're talking about this um I'm glad somebody wrote this because it feels like something that I wanted to say but I felt like I couldn't say it from within the industry um people sort of wanting to further the conversation. And that was, you know, the first maybe 
three months after it came out. And then after that, um, it sort of continued to resurface every year or two where um, somebody will reference it. So the name of this article, I have to say it, it's so good. It's called Steamed Up, the Slow Roasted Sexism of Specialty Coffee. <laughs> That's an amazing title. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Thank you. I know I'm just staring at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm really interested to hear what what did you see as um, competitors performing gender and race, um, especially from someone from the outside who isn't like so immersed in it. What what does that look like? What did that look like to you? Well, I guess I think first and foremost there was like obviously a real formality to it that you know, as a customer at a coffee shop, I wasn't getting. So I think that surprised me. But then the more you think about the formality, the more it seemed to me to be uh, gendered and raced in a particular way where it was about um, <clears throat> demonstrating authority, expertise, professionalism in this particular kind of uh, masculine way mm. um, that we associate as a culture with masculinity. And that, you know, that came down to even how the competitors were talking about the coffee, how they were talking about what the job is, but also obviously how they physically presented and how they were dressed, for example. That's uh, that's interesting because I think, so this is 2013 we're talking about. We're talking about that WBC. That's when Pete Licata won. And I'm thinking now to this year's USBC, which I was at, and messages were sort of starting to shift. Um, obviously, the winner did talk a lot about the same things that you maybe don't see in a cafe about innovation, about freezing coffee, about kind of all these particulars um, that you don't really see in cafes. But the second place winner, Andrea Allen from Onyx uh, Coffee Lab, talked about service and working with staff and being a leader. So I feel like there are these incremental changes but it's still very much concentrated expertise in a way that is very masculine so i kind of want to talk more about that the idea that expertise is very masculine um and how how that affects women who maybe want to be better coffee stewards who want to learn more who want to also be considered experts in their fields because i would consider andrea an expert but i don't know that everyone else would yeah, I think that that's uh, that there's an inherent tension uh, in service work where we think of care labor, that is labor that people do to sustain other people as being feminine in our culture. Uh, but then also as it's moved out of the home into the public sphere, there's a need to make it appear uh, more masculine in the sense of that sense of uh, skilled having expertise. Um, and so that's where I think sort of these discourses about innovation, technology, stuff like that really come into play because how do you separate the skilled labor of a barista from what, uh, say, a woman at home is doing, right? And you need to have some narrative about why it's different. And so I think that's really where gender comes into play without people really realizing that's what's happening. That's interesting thinking about the idea of care labor as something that's very feminized. Cause I feel like what's happening now is that 
care labor, especially with restaurants and service work is getting almost masculinized. Like I'm thinking about like Danny Meyer, you know, writing a book about hospitality. And now that's like a very, I wouldn't say masculine per se, but like a very professionalized way of looking at things. So do you think that that's being appropriate, not appropriated, that's not the right word, but do you think that even the idea of care labor is also being masculinized as well? Well, I think there has to be some sort of set of narratives or justifications for why men do it in the first place. And I think men feel some um, need to sort of talk about why they're invested in it, but also talk about why they're experts at it more than say the women who have already been doing it, you know, in their homes already for a long time. Like there has to be some way to set that set of skills apart as skilled labor. And so I think that's where those narratives come in. We're seeing um, a lot of men in the industry refocus on service um, and talking about why it's important to make a customer feel welcome. And in in their refocusing on service, they kind of make these blanket statements like, we haven't been very good to customers in specialty coffee or we've isolated over them over the years or we've been too prestigious or um, pompous kind of, but as if they were trying to compliment, uh, they say something like, but we found that like women are actually really good at this thing instead of having the reflection of like women have always been good at this. Women are socialized to be good at this. Women don't have an option, mm-hmm. but we have to right. cater to others so that we ourselves feel comfortable. And I think it's a little bit missing the point for all of these um uh, uh, you know, leaders in coffee who are men um, who haven't honestly worked a lot of bar shifts or behind the register and certainly not 40 hours a week in a long time to be sort of refocusing and lecturing because now it's it's profitable. It's profitable to make your customers feel welcome and it's profitable for them to come back over and over again. Um, but I'm seeing like a huge omission of gender and of race and of like the fluidity of gender too, because there are some of us who maybe we've been socialized as women, but do not identify as women. And there's a lot of complex feelings in uh, having a boss be like, Oh, you know, you should, you should really like uh, be nicer to people or smile. Like it's, it's good for business. Oh, for sure. And I mean, that just makes me think about conversations that I've had with um, women in the field where they say, you know, I went to work today and I just really didn't want to have to be so smiley and friendly. I didn't feel like it. And if I were a man, I could have gotten away with that. This is a little off topic, but in California, um, a lot of restaurants are moving to tipless service. And I wonder, yeah. as as someone who thinks about like the academic side of these things, what what do you think of that? Because it's something I see in the um, cafe. I wish I could do, but I'm like, do I wish I could do this? I don't know. As far as I can tell, it seems like a good move to me. It seems like it could only increase equality in the industry. But I think the real test would just be to have some people do it, and then, of course, we may discover that it. It doesn't help things as much as we thought, but I do think as as far as an idea, it's one people should be moving towards. 
So speaking to your expertise, um, because you you studied feminist theory and you kind of have this background um, in a lot of ways that a lot of coffee folks don't have. I think for a lot of us, we're kind of practicing like ad hoc feminism where we're just kind of trying to figure out like what's happening around us. Um, I wonder what are some ways that baristas who are on the ground, on the floor can use what you have practiced or thought about in theory to their everyday lives? I mean, I think it's funny because in a way, I think I pursued three degrees in women's studies because I was also just thinking in my everyday life, like, what the hell is going on around me? I need some tools to figure it out. And feminist theory provided those for me. So I actually think that um, just like basically reading some feminist theory starting somewhere could be extremely helpful and useful and talking about it with other people um, because that was my experience. Do you have any recommended reading? Well, I'm right now I'm reading, uh, I've been reading this book called Gender Ideas, Interactions and Institutions. And it's designed as a textbook and it's by Lisa Wade and Myra Marks Ferry, I think is how you pronounce the last name. And I'm finding it really comprehensive and accessible, but there's just so much stuff out there. Um, but in particular, in this book, they have a whole chapter on work that I think would be really useful. So another thing that I wanted to talk about, too, is this idea of, of sexism as like a practiced action, as something that mm. people do actively, because I think one of the arguments that we're running into a lot in the coffee world is this idea of like, oh, like I'm saying that sexism exists. And then other people are like, well, I just treat everyone equally. Like sexism is a thing that you do. Like you wake up in the morning and you decide like, I'm going to be sexist towards my staff. Um, yeah. And trying to talk to people about how, number one, the institutions that you engage with are sexist. Number two, the perceptions that you have about the world around you are also likely sexist, but that doesn't mean that you're practicing it actively. So I wonder how do we engage with people in ways that kind of highlight that, that say like, Hey, like, you know, that way that you just treated that customer versus that other customer. And that one was a man and this one was a woman. Like that was sexist. Like how do we start highlighting these, these modes of action that, are implicitly sexist, but people don't seem to recognize them as such because there's such like a, an autonomy over sexism that it's something that must be practiced day in and day out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a tough question. Um, but I do think that it seems to me like that a shift in perspective is the most important thing. So I think you can sort of like point out individual actions or specific instances. But if the person you're talking to um, hasn't looked at sort of a larger system, they're never going to see it. And again, that's sort of where I think um, there are so many resources out there for explaining those larger systems that I don't think, um, you know, like we should feel beholden to having to re-explain them every time, like yourself. Yeah. I think there are resources. And, and I, in my experience, you know, there are some people who just they don't want to hear it. They don't want to engage in it. But if you say, 
it seems like you want to understand this, but you're not understanding this. Can I give you this thing to read that's 10 pages long or something? And then we can talk about it. That actually you're letting somebody else do a lot more of the work for you. And you're more on the same page when you come back to have that conversation. Um, that's sort of one strategy that I find effective. But of course, I'm speaking as a teacher. So I would say that. <laughs> I think that's a really great way to kind of not wear yourself out saying the same things over and over. Yeah, it can be so exhausting. Um, it really can be. Another thing that I've found to be more helpful is, um, you know, when you call someone out, they can feel like isolated or put on blast or really embarrassed. And when you almost normalize their behavior, not to excuse it, but to say, like, doing something that's misogynistic is not once in a lifetime occurrence. It's an everyday, all the time occurrence. So you're not alone Everybody is this way. That doesn't let you off the hook, but you're also not the bad guy and everybody else is the good guy. Well, right. I mean, there does seem to be something sort of inherently unfair about when people are raised in a system that is sexist and then they take on ideas and actions and behaviors that are sexist. And then, you know, we turn around and say, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And they have, if, they haven't been provided an alternative. Now, a lot of times I think where the conversation breaks down is that people are trying to provide an alternative and they're sort of resistant to that alternative and get defensive. And then that's where I think you find a lot of that real fraught, tense interaction happening. That was, that was awesome. I really, <laughs> I wrote that down. They haven't been provided an alternative. <laughs> But yeah, I do think I'm actually I'm thinking about I'm teaching a critical masculinities course right now. And and I think a lot of the, the problem is that we don't provide other meaningful ways of identifying as a as a man, you know, there are some but you have to really work for them. And I think if we could sort of for everybody say, here are some alternative less sexist ways to be and think and feel. Uh, that were really accessible, that people could pick up and feel sort of identify with and feel proud about, that um, that would take some of the tension out of the conversation. Because mm -hmm. I think people feel really stuck a lot of times. Because they're like, I've been trained to be this way, and now you're saying I shouldn't be that way, but how else am I supposed to be? Especially um, if it benefits them to sort of be the sexist or misogynistic way. Yeah, I was thinking about how sometimes people, like people who benefit from oppressive systems, kind of hijack identity politics language and say mm. things like, but this is who I am, or you know, no, I, I didn't mean to be offensive, I just talk this way because this is right. where, you know, who yeah. I am and like where I came from, or um, I'm thinking of like non-black people of color who use the N-word, and like, mm -hmm. don't see a problem with it. Like for them to be like, Hey, you can't do that. That's offensive. That's racist. It might be like, but this is like part of my identity. Like you don't get me. You must not get me if you say this is offensive. Cause I would never be offensive. It's like that argument where people are like the people who know me would say yes. that. And I think that that happens a lot when people feel like they're being attacked for a mode of operating that they shouldn't be operating under. Yeah. I think the best yeah. way to illuminate that kind of uh, like 
what you're doing is working within a bigger system and this part you're playing is inherently oppressive in a small way, but do you want to be oppressive at all? It's like you almost have to zoom out and you have to give people that context um, because when they're in their bubble, they're like, but I would never be offensive because that is, yeah. that is their truth. You, it's totally fine to say, okay, I hear you that that's your narrative and like that that's real for you. But also like you need to understand that for me, this feels this way and I'm not like I, I find it really effective to sort of not, not to say um, you can't be that way but to just say like if you are that way here's the consequence for me and it's up to you if you decide you still want to do it mm-hmm. um, and then it's up to me to decide if I want to interact with you which of course is harder at work. Something that I've seen a lot in arguments about race and gender and just any sort of marginalization is people's need to play devil's advocate. And obviously Mm. you see that in a very different light because you teach classes and you work with students, but I wonder how you combat that mode of thinking and where do you think that might come from where people feel this need to, to not necessarily put themselves a hundred percent in that argument, but to like kind of say like, I sort of believe this, but I'm going to play devil's advocate and put that, as my like qualifier just to be safe. I mean, I think there is sort of a standard about knowledge in general in our culture that it's supposed to be quote unquote objective and measurable. So that feels real. I think more for um, that objectivity feels real more for people who are taken as the universal that is for straight white guys, basically that um, for sort of the rest of us, we know the way that knowledge is experiential, it's embodied, um, and very subjective and oftentimes quite unfair. And so I think that sort of contrarian devil's advocate thing comes from this like intent to just be like, oh, well, we just need to find the best ideas. And that ideas are sort of not attached to people's real experience or something. So if you just say, like, fine, you want to pretend that all ideas are equal and then we'll, we'll have a conversation about them, let's do that for a second. That blew my mind, too. <laughs> Sorry. I just, just the idea that knowledge is, ob- is objective to certain groups of people. Um, right. And it just reminded me, um, these are not, not totally similar, but a little bit, but the idea of, of passion in coffee because that's like a Mm. hot thing to talk about like why am I in coffee it's because I'm passionate about it but passion also seems pretty subjective to me because you can't be passionate about a thing if like you have other things in your life that are keeping you from pursuing that so it's it's just so interesting that the way that we construct a narrative around coffee and around a lot of different industries is by this like straight white male perception of what is true and what is not true. Um, And for so many of us who are trying to say, well, there's other things that are true, being met with this insistence that our experiences are not real is, is harmful, but it also makes sense when you think about that, that when you're straight and white and male, oftentimes your perception of the world is kind of this objective understanding that has never been rattled. Right. It's like, 
this is you've just had your um, belief that that is objective reality affirmed over and over again. So there's no ability to see your that you actually are coming from a particular point of view also. Yeah, I love that you use the word like it's the perceived universal perspective. Mm -hmm. Because like I've always used the word default, but like I feel like perceived universal perspective is a little bit more on point because it's it's like in in every scenario at work service the media we assume that the universal perspective is actually a really specific set of um of experiences and yet we all just kind of buy it so when someone else or huge groups of people are like this doesn't ring true for me either it's like what no it rings true for everybody that's stop you're weird anyway there's there's like a move there too where it's like if it doesn't ring true for you you should work hard to make it ring true for you so if it's different for you there's a problem with you not with what's going on right and and that's sort of like where people get stuck because it's sort of like well if you see a difference the the problem is your difference right Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. It's an issue with your ability to not work hard enough or to understand someone else's right. argument or to not work within a system that's designed to not promote you or not empower you to do well. Right. Yeah, for sure. Jasper, you look like you're looking at something. I am. I'm I'm looking at um well, I'm I'm wanting to talk about uh the opportunity we as a coffee industry, service industry, and food industry have to revalue um, emotional labor and to like mm-hmm. re-emphasize that care work, as you put it so well, is an important and valuable and professional skill and not one to be like minimized or devalued simply because it is feminized or usually... Um, usually occupied by women and people of color. I wondered if you could maybe talk more about that and maybe, you know, bring a little context into how historically this work has been. Uh, Like, what does it mean uh, to have the person caring? I'm rambling a little bit. (laughs) 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 To to like, how do you you put value on um, things that have been deemed like, skilled or home labor. Right. So, I mean, there is this division between public and private labor and that labor in the home was supposed to be care labor. Reproductive labor has primarily done in the home and it's unpaid or underpaid. And it's usually done by women. um, And, and in particular women of color end up doing a lot of underpaid care labor in our society. Um, And so those are things, those are sort of tasks that people have to do to maintain their life, right? So it's like all the stuff that has to happen before you go to your paid job, right? So somebody has to, you have to be fed, the food needs to be cooked, there has, laundry has to be done. And then also there's sort of more immediate things like um, children quite literally need to be cared for, the elderly, um, all of us at different stages of our life need emotional care um, and just sort of basic sustenance work, right? And we think of all of that work as stuff that 
is supposed to happen and shouldn't be paid, or if it is paid, it's not skilled. We think of it as sort of innate or something that people would want to do without pay. But then we have uh, sort of the transition of all this labor into the public sphere where people are getting paid for it. And there has been a real movement, I think, to try to say, no, this, this labor should be uh, valued and paid for because it is essential for society, right? It's essential for everyone. Everybody needs it. So we should really value it more. We should value cooking more. We should value um, education more. We should value caretaking more, like child care, elderly care. Um, and I, I would include um, the work of baristas in that. I think baristas do a lot of, they obviously do service work, but they also do a lot of emotional labor for their customers that's just sort of part of the job. And so rather than take the strategy of saying, no, this is actually skilled labor that's, you know, so innovative and it's um, really a professional job and that's why it should be valued, there's an opportunity to sort of flip the discourse and say, this is essential labor that people have been doing for a long time that gets, uh, that is unpaid or underpaid. And we as baristas or service workers think it should be valued just more generally in our culture. And therefore there should be higher wages, more prestige for everybody who does it. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. I love yeah. that. I love that because I, I have not, quite understood why I felt resistance to talking about service work as like growing more and more professional because it kind of doesn't feel as genuine or robotic or it feels like the professionalism means that it deserves uh, more money instead of just that like truly being empathetic and being meeting the needs of your customers like whether or not you're professional is valuable inherently. Right. And I mean, like just saying caring for other people is valuable and that we should support people who do that work, I think is like still a really revolutionary statement. It is. And it's something I think in coffee, we're just starting to realize because so much of the coffee industry, like ladder is focused on getting you outside of the cafe. It's focused on like, okay, you've been a barista for this long. Now you get to do training or you get to do sales or something like that. So we kind of relegate barista work to the lowest level, even though we don't have an industry without them. Right. And I think that is like sort of the essential thing about care labor, whether it's paid or unpaid is that it's so essential, but it's so undervalued, but nothing else would happen without it. Like, literally, our society would fall apart without it. But we just take it for granted. That's true. Um, I want to hear more about your experiences with coffee. So you're based in Portland. um, Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a little bit before we got on the air that you will, you know, every now and then meet students in cafes. And I wonder, like, what, what appeals to you in a cafe? What doesn't appeal to you? What are some experiences you've had with some of your students in coffee shops? Um, 
just talking about your own like experiences with coffee in real time. Well, it's so interesting because I, ne- you know, I never really thought about it at all until I became friends with those baristas in Atlanta. And it, in a way, it sort of feels like they sort of trained me into like understanding this is the kind of interaction you can have with your baristas if you're sort of like friends with them or just friendly with them. If you're a regular, if you tip well, if you inhabit the space in this way, and there's like all these codes for doing that. Um, And so in that sense, I feel like I got some, maybe we could call it cultural capital that transferred when I moved here to Portland. And so I feel pretty comfortable navigating coffee shops here um, because I feel like I sort of like, I, I fit in, I know the rules. Um, but then I have a lot of friends and students who will say, uh, I don't want to meet you at, you know, one of the, any of those specialty coffee shops I go to because I don't feel comfortable there. Um, I don't feel like I fit in. I don't like it there. Um, and, and I totally, that totally makes me pause and evaluate why it is or how it is that I became comfortable, um, in those spaces. That's interesting. I've never thought about the cultural capital of being able to navigate a coffee shop. Um, obviously because, you know, a lot of us in the industry have it. So when we talk to each other, we understand what the rules are of, going into a cafe, ordering with the barista, leaving a tip, bussing your table. Um, and I wonder how we can, we as baristas can make others feel more comfortable when they walk in the door. Because some of the onus is obviously on us to be more, be more accepting of more people. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's like, it's very similar to the way some people feel about like fine dining, for example, or the way I used to feel about fine dining where I completely avoided it. Cause I was like, I don't know the rules. I feel so uncomfortable. I feel so out of place. Um, and actually actively having to learn those, but that, that, uh, even being able to learn those rules was sort of dependent upon like number one, me having a certain amount of money to enter that space but I think also dependent upon like me having a network of friends who could sort of take me and help me feel comfortable there and having people who would reach out and sort of teach me the rules. And so, you know, the fact that I became friends with those baristas, like I was able to do that. Um, And I don't think that that's sort of accidental. I think they were part of a, a network of people who were mostly middle class white people in Atlanta. And so it was sort of easier for me to get access to those roles. So I'm thinking about how, um, how spaces like specialty coffee shop spaces, um, can be a little cookie cutter. They can kind of, we see the same design choices over and over again. And when we hear the very common customer or non-customer sentiment of like, I feel uncomfortable, I don't want to go in, I don't know the rules, all of the pressure is then put on the specialty coffee barista or register person to warm up the space, be cheery, like provide um, direction. And honestly, it's kind of 
insulting when these spaces are going to be unapproachable and unwelcoming from the beginning and then to like make the barista do all the extra work of like, oh yeah, I know we don't have a condo stand, just give it to me like 70,000 times during their day or, oh, just uh, wait, wait for the buzz and then I'll buzz you into the bathroom. Like all those little things add up to an uncomfortable and unhospitable place and yet we don't really hear we don't really talk about that and we don't really talk about how the coffee shop inherently is not accessible to many, many people. Oh yeah, I definitely think it's a lot of design flaws. When I say we, I use the grand the grand we. Yes. Yeah, and I think it, it there are so many design choices that just sort of signify a certain um set of practices or even a kind of like welcomingness to some groups and not others where it's just sort of like, you know, I think it's possible to say like certain spaces look aesthetically white. Totally. And, and if you're designing your cafe that way, then you should not be surprised when you're like, why don't more people of color come into my coffee shop? Right. Or um, I just think there's, a kind of uniformity that is based on like a kind of sameness that requires uh, an implicit kind of exclusion. Yeah. I think it probably originated with specialty coffee trying to differentiate itself from commodity coffee. And so we're like almost putting on the, the signals of like, we are, special we are expensive we are upper class and it kind of has begun to sort of work itself out into this like this is for rich people or this is for white people or if you are going to be comfortable here and you're not all of those things you have to play by this rule book that we don't tell you we only like passively be like oh don't do this or no, no, right. no, I've got it, like over niceness or just like shut down entirely. Um, yeah, it's a really it's a really weird system we've built for ourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. For yeah. Sure. And, and I mean, it's like, you know, I know people want to talk a lot of shit about Starbucks, for example, but like most people know the rules in a Starbucks now. Mm-hmm. Right. And like that is an easily accessible space to navigate for most people in the U S right. And like, I think there is something to be said for that. Yeah, you're right. People, most people can feel comfortable going into a Starbucks and ordering, um, anything they want, anything they want. Yeah. Right. No judgment. And there's usually not not on the menu. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I think some of those, um, the decisions that Starbucks made were like not not design decisions, but like functional decisions and, you know, used to have signs where it was like order here, pick up here. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if they do that anymore, but uh, the kind of like spoon feeding to the customer, like we've got you, we're helping you with all these little signals uh, really, really made a difference and helped helped their business kind of grow because everybody felt like they could have a part of it. Right. And I mean, I think you could also argue on the other hand that you lose some of the 
interaction and some of the what makes the experience of um, interacting with a skilled barista valuable in that because it is so mapped out for everybody that you can kind of kind of go through the experience in a rote sort of consumer culture way. So I, there's got to be some sort of balance there between preserving an actual face-to-face interaction that feels comfortable for people on both sides of the counter and also making spaces accessible where people don't feel um, excluded from them from the start. Um, I have one final, well, maybe not final because maybe Jasper has more questions. Um, okay. But I do have, um, I have a question for you. Um, I just wonder what, what really like gets you when you walk into a cafe or a coffee shop? Are there any things that you see or any modes of behavior that you witness that you're like, oh my God, why is this happening? Um, or things that get under your skin? Um, I mean, actually things that really get under my skin ha- have more to do with other customers, but the like, <laughs> the, uh, the sort of stereotypical, usually older male, really loud talker in a cafe drives me insane. I'm like, this is a public space that we are sharing and you are taking up way more than your share. Like I paid just as much to be here and I am being considerate. And like, why do I have to listen to your conversation while I'm trying to read or whatever? Mm-hmm. That is, that's like the one thing that drives me insane. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. <laughs> I think it's like on my end, like that customer who comes in, who, for some reason thinks that he can ask me about how the business is doing. <laughs> mm. Like that's, it's always male. Um, <laughs> right. But someone is like, how's business doing? Like you guys real busy. Like you guys make a lot of money. I'm like, I have no idea why you think that that is appropriate. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's like a real, this real sense of ownership yeah. over the space, which I think again, like I think that there's a kind of tacit way that baristas grant that to regulars. And so, mm. um, I think that's a delicate thing too, right? It's like you're saying you're welcome in this space. This is partially yours. Um, we want you here, but like maybe it takes more labor to do that for some people than other people. Like maybe some people just walk in and they feel already like I own every space anyway. So why wouldn't I own this space too? And you don't really have to grant that to them. Yeah. I have a question. Yes. What, do you drink when you go to a specialty coffee shop? Um, it's funny because my baristas always make fun of me because they are like, we never know what you're going to order. We can <laughs> never predict. Ooh. And like, and they accuse me of like, they'll say, you know, are you having a cappuccino today? And I'll say, no, like I'm, ha- I'm going to have a mocha today. And they're, they'll be like, you changed your mind just because I said that, didn't you? I, just, <laughs> I swear I don't do that. I um, like but the, I, I generally mix it up. That's awesome. I love the customers that mix it up. Mm-hmm. I really do. I mean, I definitely am a person who drinks the same thing over and over again, but I love it when a customer, like, I don't know. Like, well, it's adventurous? Yeah, you use, you like, coffee almost feels like, um, an expression of how you're feeling emotionally that day. So I really it love is, that I get to experience it, it and like help craft it. It is like, and it's also like I have a very, an internal system of like, 
looking around and seeing how much space there is. So like, if there's not a lot of space, maybe I'll get like a large mocha to go. But if there's a lot of space, maybe I'll get a cappuccino and stay. And like, I like some of the um, cups and not some of the others. And so like, there's some drinks I'll only order into go cups. <laughs> it's very intense decision making process. In there. I absolutely agree. I have a lot of feelings about the thickness of the cups and like uh, how mm-hmm. wide the uh, the opening is. So like I don't like the tulip cappuccino cups because they're too wide. We oh, get... those are my favorites. Oh, I don't really like it because <laughs> then you like it just gets too. <laughs> All the foam like stays on top. So every single sip you're getting, it's like too foamy for me. And I, I prefer a more thin cappuccino in a, like a, a bowlish kind you, of cup. But you, you know what I really hate? What? I don't like. Demi toss cups. I don't like getting an espresso in a little demi toss because I want to. I want to swirl it around. Give me, g- give me a bigger cup, like a wow. Gibraltar cup. Yeah. Oh, I love. I love espresso in glass. No, I, I swirl. Ah. Oh. Jasper I'm hates all me now. about the demi cup. I like the demi cup, and I like a big like. I like a shot that's like thirty-five or forty grams out, and then I want a cup. I want a demi toss cup, and I want a spoon. Because I like the way it like it holds it, it like keeps it warm and it keeps it contained. So a bigger cup, like a cappuccino cup, it like loses a lot of heat. That's great. And, That's what I want. Uh, but yeah, okay, we're getting See, off topic. The, yeah, <laughs> these things, but but these things really matter when you really get into it. For they your do. Yeah, they totally yeah. do. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, is there a way that they can do that? Is there a way that they can follow you on any social media or if they um, want to get well, their master's degree from you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, they can definitely, if they're in Portland, they can sign up for my class next month about food and social identity through the Portland Underground Graduate School. That's uh, pugspdx.com. And I'm sort of on and off social media I kind of don't like being on there but I end up being on there to to promote things like my class so they might be able to catch me on Instagram Mm -hmm. is there any place where we might be able to catch more of your writing um well actually probably the best way to to keep up with my writing is if on, on LinkedIn I always post what I've been writing um but also and I everything I've written is up there too so awesome Thank Amazing. Yeah. Worth, Thank- worth noting, uh, Lisa Nisley, K-N-I-S-E-L-Y. That's correct. Yeah, it's a tough one. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Um, if you guys thank ha- you so much. Yeah. If you guys have any other questions, you can email us at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Um, we're also on Instagram as bossbaristapodcast and Kind of on Twitter, sometimes on Twitter. Yeah. Boss underscore barista. We're working on that. Um, But thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. As always, I'm Ashley Rodriguez. And I'm Jasper Wild. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You're all the best.